Shabbat Shalom. Uh, this is the first time I'm saying it, so please be seated. <laughs> uh, today I am asked to speak on the final topic of the series on the parables, and uh, I thought that we should begin by looking at the at a, at a scripture passage, and we will read together. So let us read together, uh, Luke chapter fourteen. Uh, verses 25 to 33. So let us read together. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So my topic today is the parable of the tower and, and war and uh, having what it takes. You know, Jesus is uh, very counter what we do today. Great crowds are following him and he turns to them and tells them up front, are you able to follow me? You know, today we say that uh, uh, I've spoken to so many people and they have accepted Christ. Ten people have accepted Christ. Uh, but, Jesus, but how many have Jesus accepted? So we have two sides of the coin. We must accept Christ. At the same time, uh, there's a cost of discipleship. And that's what we're going to look at today in this parable. So what are parables? Uh, the word parable is a Greek word that's made up of two smaller words, para and uh, bole, or, or where you get the word ball, you know, it means throw. And para means beside, to throw alongside or to put alongside. So you have para church organization, uh, paramedic, and so on. So parables are stories or even one-liners that are put aside, uh, a main idea, uh, uh, to, to, to act as a contrast, as it were. And parables can have a wide range of uses. Parables can be used to make things difficult or easy. Parables can be riddles or allegories or simple one-liner. And so last week, Pastor Kim Yong spoke on the parable of the sower, which was quite a long story, and uh, it was what we call an allegory because it's a hidden meaning. Jesus said that I, I spoke in parables so that people don't understand. Uh, and then he had to interpret 
the parable, so the seed stands for the word of God, and then the soil stands for the type of hearers, and so on. And parables can be very simple too. So today I'm quite fortunate to have a very simple parable, <laughs> so that I don't have to explain. Uh, so, Tower and wars were very common in the days of Jesus, right? Because they were under, you know, the history of Israel, constant wars. And our cities were built with towers and so on. And, uh, and even at the time of Jesus, they were under Roman occupation. So the Romans had many towers along the road. Uh, and and uh, kings are always fighting. King Herod was a great tower builder. Masada, some of you have been there. And he fought many wars. And some people say that some of the parables referred to some of the wars of Herod. Uh, Herod was very good at uh, making peace with, uh, with his enemies, so he, he carried favor many uh, Roman generals, and he, you know, so he got his favor. That, that was why he was installed as a king, because he negotiated. He couldn't fight the Romans. So these things were very, I mean, in the context of Jesus, they knew what he was talking about, uh, right? Uh, and... Uh, and so Jesus used the tower and the walls uh, as simple illustrations. And he used these two parables as big picture examples on what he was teaching, which was the cost of following him. And uh, Jesus told the crowds that it is very costly, extremely costly, to follow him in a straightforward manner, you know, he didn't, you know, he didn't uh, use uh, techniques to make people follow him and then sign on the dotted lines and then don't tell them to small print. He tells them to small print first, so that you don't have biased regret. Right? He said it plainly. The cost of following him, and he said it repeatedly. He said it three times. In fact, in a passage that we have just read in verse twenty-six. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, he used the word hate, you know, who do not, uh, who puts your relationship ahead of me, you know, you, uh, in, the, in the Matthew passage, it talks about not loving your father or mother or your children more than me. And then he goes on to say, yes, even your own life, not only your cherished relationships and your possessions, but your own life. And he said, if you don't hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Right? Then he said it a second time. Whoever does not bear his own cross. You know, uh, we know what bearing a cross means. A person who carries his cross is a criminal in the context of Jesus. A Roman a criminal, uh, you know, uh, according to the Roman laws or Roman rules, and he is on his way to being killed. He is a dead man walking, as we say in today's terms. He has lost everything. And then in his final moments, he's at, at the, in the final moments of his life, and he has to carry the cross beam uh, and then uh, to his own execution that, that is just shortly down that road. So he says, if you don't bear your own cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. The second time he says it. Then, in case we still didn't get it, he said the third time. Right? He says, so therefore, after telling the two parables, he, he concluded, 
with very powerful concluding statements. So therefore, all right, be very careful what I've just told you, he said. I've told you twice, I've given you two parables, and therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. You know, these are ultimate statements, right? Uh, this is the cost of following Jesus. But Jesus tells the two parables uh, hypothetically. Imagine situations with two possible outcomes, success or failure. So he's going to tell the hearers, look, this is what's going to happen if you want to be successful or not. Right? So he gave the two imagined situations. In the parable of the tower, he asked his hearers, if any of you, so we are supposed to imagine that now we are, that we are going to build a tower. We desire to build a tower. The builder is now motivated by a desire. He has a wish. He has an aspiration. He has a dream. And his dream is to have a fantastic tower. Just like King Herod, right? Masada was his dream. Uh, he wants that tower badly. And so Jesus is challenging his hearers. Look, you have heard my teaching and some of you or many of you are inspired by my high moral ideals, by my high calling, and you are so inspired, right? You're all hyped up, he said, as we say today. You're motivated because you've seen my miracles. You have, you know, you've seen the example of my life. You are so hyped up. In the last few weeks, you've come to my Galilee campaign, right? But then desires, you know, Jesus is very honest. Don't be hyped up. Right? Our life is not changed by a five-minute altar call. Right? But desires are merely emotions. The real thing is reality. Desires must be tested by reality. So he tells this parable so that you can imagine the outcome, the totality of your life, whether you can make it or not. So for the desire of this builder to become a reality, First of all, he would have to sit down and to do the homework. He has to do what we call the hard calculations, do the math. He must factor in everything, the weather, the inflation, and things like that. And then find out the total cost of the project. Then he must decide, do I have enough? If not, don't start. Jesus said, if you start and you cannot finish, people will mock you. So he's telling his disciples, uh, his hearers, if you are failed disciples, people will mock you. People will laugh at you, right? Maybe all the demons will laugh at you. In the second parable, Jesus asked his hearers again to imagine themselves as a king. And this king is not motivated by desire. But he's motivated by a very different set of emotions. Very powerful emotions. He's motivated by fear. Because he has heard that his enemy king is coming to him with 20,000 soldiers. He's facing an existential challenge, as it were. And he has to act. So he has to calculate, how many soldiers do I have? If he has only 10,000, can he beat the 20,000? Can he fight the war? Can he win the war? Right. So Jesus is saying, you imagine... You have 10,000 soldiers. Can you be my disciple when my war is 20,000? 
So the two parables are about application of the truth that Jesus was teaching. Jesus using the two parables to challenge and to warn his would-be disciples. He's telling people, if you want to stay in my church and be my church members, you've got to be careful, right? And then you imagine half the church leaving, you know. It's a very brave pastor who's able to do that. <laughs> right? But that's our Jesus, right? Um, Jesus very interesting person, right? right uh, he does everything that the church, uh, uh, you know, the church doing everything that he doesn't do. <laughs> the church doesn't do what he does. Right? And so he says to his would-be disciples, he turned to the crowd. Right? In fact, in the passage in John, when some people left him, he turned to his disciples, are you going to leave me also? Right? He didn't say, hey, you are the last people, just stick around with me, right? Now, do you really want to be my disciple? And if you want to be my disciple, are you able to pay the cost? Do you have what it takes? The big picture parables are very clear. You can be a successful or bankrupt builder. You can be a victorious king or defeated king. The outcome is dependent on whether you have what it takes. Now, I want you to note very carefully that the parables are not about the cost of discipleship. Right? The parables are about the ability to pay the cost, not the cost. Right? Because Jesus already made very clear to us what's the cost. Everything. So let us look at the parables again and let us now imagine a successful outcome. Now let us suppose that the tower costs $50,000. The builder has $100,000. So he clearly has what it takes. He has the money to bring his desire into reality. His money, his material possession would enable him to make his tower a reality. He is a successful builder. He has a tower that everybody admires because he could pay the cost. He had what it took. And then let us suppose in the second parable, the king has 50,000 soldiers. He has 2.5 to 1, right? And again, he would be able to overcome the challenge from the king with 20,000. His possession of 50,000 soldiers enables him to win the war. He successfully overcome a challenge and a threat. He is the victorious king. He had what it took. But in both the parables, the cost was material things, right? Money, soldiers. But when it comes to following Jesus, it is something different. Of course, uh, he, Jesus talked about possessions and relationships, which are material things. But then he talks about carrying the cross and giving up your life. So the question is, how do you pay Jesus? <laughs> how do you pay Jesus? In Matthew 19.21, Jesus tells the rich young man to sell his possessions, give the money to the poor, then follow him. You can give up your possessions by giving them away. And in the case of the 12 disciples, they said to Jesus, we have left our families to follow you. So we, we, we can actually leave behind our cherished relationship to follow Jesus. But then it comes to giving up our life 
How, how do we do it? I mean, he's not asking us to commit suicide, right? So what does it mean to give up our life, to be a living sacrifice in the terms of St. Paul? How do you become a sacrifice that's not dead, but alive? And so some of us may say, giving up my life means giving up control of my life. It is giving up my will to control myself. And how do I do that? I do that by using my willpower. What it takes is my willpower. Having what it takes means having a strong willpower. I will have that willpower to deny myself, to say no to myself, and say yes to Jesus. Well, for a long time I thought this was the right answer. <laughs> but I want to tell you, the Bible tells us this is the wrong answer. Right? It's the wrong answer. So let us look at so let us look at the wrong answer the Bible gives us. Let us look at Matthew twenty six, thirty to thirty five. And this is the famous passage where Jesus and his disciples have just finished the Last Supper and they were going to Mount Olives or Gethsemane, a garden of Gethsemane, and then Jesus said, uh, you will you will betray me, you will fall away and all that. And then verse thirty three, look at verse thirty three, it says, And Peter answered it. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Then he said in verse 35, <coughs> excuse me, even if I must die with you, right, give up my life for you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples said the same, but Peter got the bad, got a bad uh, reputation because his name was mentioned. The Bible says all the other ten disciples said the same thing. Peter was clearly using his willpower. I will never. I will not. He was singing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Don't none go with me, right? Still I will follow. And then he turns around and he hears the other disciples singing the same song. We have decided to follow Jesus. Right? No turning back. No turning back. Then I want you to look. You know, the Bible is full of humor, right? Because it's about real life. You know, one thing when you read the teachings of Jesus, you must see how his teachings will played out in his life, in the life of the disciples. Then you will get the real teaching. Right? You just If you take the abstract teaching alone, you will get misled. His teachings are always applied in real life setting. So we look at the real life setting here now, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane. So verse 70, let's look at uh, Matthew 26. 69 to 75, and then let's look at verse 70. Here was Peter in a courtyard. Jesus was inside that, that castle uh, being tried. And he was cold, so he stood among the fire. And a servant girl said, you were with Jesus. And then verse 70, he denied it before them all. He denied it before a girl, saying, I do not know what you mean. Right. Then another girl came and said, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And then he said, I do not know the man. 
I have decided. Yeah, that's what he sang. Then he began to curse himself and to swear. He reversed his oath to Jesus with another curse. I do not know the man. You know the servant girl mentioned Jesus by name. But the chief disciple did not even mention the name of Jesus. So you see, what happened to Peter's willpower? His willpower wilted, evaporated, disappeared into thin air. His willpower bites the dust. His desire to follow Jesus to the end was an emotional fantasy. An emotional fantasy generated at the great Galilean revivals of Jesus Christ. Now we are faced with a big problem, right? Now it's us. Now Peter and the ten disciples were specially chosen by Jesus and they failed. So my question to myself is do I even stand a chance? The people who knew Jesus failed. We who are 2,000 years ago and uh, have a miracle here, a miracle there, a healing here and a healing there, and lots of singing, can we succeed? <laughs> can we succeed, you know? Right? Is Jesus asking us to do the impossible? Is discipleship an ideal that's Stirs up our emotions. I mean, the song I've decided to follow Jesus is very stirring. In fact, Josh Yeo, whom I know from Penang, has given a modern version that has become a hit, right? Very powerful, right? It's very idealistic. It stirs up our emotions, warms the heart. Wow, you know, Jesus, I'm going to die with you, for you. Uh, you know, no problem, give up my job. No problem, give up my loved ones. No problem, right? but can never be achieved in reality. And then you have a problem. Is Jesus the teacher of truth that you and I cannot put into practice? Right? Don't you think that's the problem now? Now, unfortunately, you know, many of us, myself included, in our heart, we, we think it's an ideal. In our hearts, we conclude that discipleship is costly. Nevertheless, it's an ideal a noble ideal that we can aspire to and we can sing on Sunday but can never achieve. I think that's what's in our heart today if we, if we examine it carefully. We know that Jesus did it, right? Uh, that's for sure because he died on the cross. Then we say that's because he's the son of God. But I want to tell you that this is a heresy. When we say that Jesus died and gave his life to God fully, paid the costly price of discipleship, he did it because he's the son of God. This is called the heresy of docetism. Docetism means bluff, that Jesus was not a real human being. But I want to tell you that the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus was a human being. Right? Even though he was God, 
Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 says that because he himself suffered, he was tempted. He suffered the temptation. He suffered, uh, you know, the weaknesses of the will. He was he's able to help those who are tempted. Jesus, in fact, himself was tempted to give up. Wow. Isn't that an amazing uh, discovery? You know, before there was Good Friday, there was Agony Thursday. Before Calvary, there was Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives. It is in Gethsemane that the secret of Jesus' success is revealed. So to make it clear in our minds today, I call it the grace of Gethsemane before the cross of Calvary. There must be a Gethsemane before there's a Calvary. We must go to Gethsemane before we can give up our life for Jesus Christ. And so let's look at Luke chapter 22, verses 41 to 44. And as Jesus withdrew from the disciples about a stone's throw away, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will. But yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Isn't that amazing? That in his agony, in his struggle, in his weakness, Jesus was weak like all of us. That's why he suffered. That's why he was tempted. Right? And an angel came and strengthened him. It's amazing. And he was in agony. You know, if Jesus could have just paid the price as a son of God, as the Docetists would say, then there would be no agony. It would have been a breeze for him. He was in agony and sweat, right? And then after that struggling with the Father, Gethsemane, you know, we don't know how long it took, and then he rose, and then he could face the cross. So look at carefully at verse 42. Father, if you are willing remove this cup, this cup of death and suffering, the cup of the cross from me. The final price of discipleship. The price of obedience. Then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But what does it mean to say, not my will? It means that Jesus is admitting. Listen carefully. Jesus admits that my will it's not strong enough. It is not my will that's going to accomplish that cross for you, Father. Right? And this is our mistake. This is the mistake why we are idealists rather than realists. So Jesus was saying, not my will. Unlike Peter, Jesus knows that his human will on his own is no match for the brutal reality of giving up your life, of facing death, of saying no to our desires, of doing the will of God. And here's the secret. Jesus knows something far, far greater. He knows that God's will does not fail. God's will does not fail. 
God's will is always done in heaven and on earth. God's will is always done, no matter what. So he appeals to God's will. He said, not my will, but yours. Jesus appeals to God's sovereignty. Jesus takes his weakness to his Father's strength. In his weakness, he goes to the throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 To look for mercy and grace. He says, Father, my will is not strong enough. On my will, I can't make it. I am tempted to give up. I don't have what it takes. If you can, take this cup from me. But if not, let your will, let your will, your will, not my will, your will, not my willpower, your willpower, God. Nothing is impossible with God. You know, when Mary said to the Gabriel, how can it be that I am going to conceive the Son of God? You know, the angel said, nothing is impossible with God. And then when the rich young ruler who couldn't sell all he had to follow Jesus, and the disciples said, who then can be saved? Jesus said, with man, it is not it's impossible. But nothing is impossible with God. God's will will always be done. I surrender to your will. So I want you to note that Jesus did not go to the cross by his own willpower. It, it was the power of God's will, not his will. Jesus had to trust God, had to place his will, his weak will, the, his struggles, his agony in the powerful hands of God. It was God's power that empowered his will. My brothers and sisters, this is the secret of having what it takes is to know that we don't have it. And to know that somebody has it. And in that same garden, while Jesus was in agony, while Jesus was struggling with his own will, Jesus didn't sing, I have decided to follow this Peter. The Peter who said that was asleep. <laughs> he was very confident. He thought he had what it takes. He went to sleep. Even Jesus told him, you've got to pray. He trusted in himself, his own willpower. And that's what we call the heresy of Pelagius. Pelagius said, of my own free will, I can obey God. If of our own free will, we can pay the cost of discipleship, then we don't need Jesus to be our saviour. That's the heresy of Pelagius. Our willpower has no power to die for Jesus. We cannot, we must not trust in our own abilities. We cannot, even though, so you see, when Jesus taught that parable, he was going to let the disciples test out in reality. Right? So because down the road, then the disciples found out the true meaning of his teaching. So when Jesus calls us to follow him, idealists like Peter will say, yes, we will. And then they can't. Right? The realists, which I hope you are today, say, Lord, I'm all stirred up. My whole heart is full of desire to love you and so on. But I can't. I cannot. Help me. 
I don't have what it takes. Give me the grace of Gethsemane. So in closing, I want to speak to idealistic idealistic Christians. That means all of us. (laughs) Uh, Only idealists can stand up the pulpit, right? How many times I was Peter, right? Right. I got out of the church service so inspired, right? Until I, I met a reality just down the road, then I said, maybe I'll do it tomorrow, you know? <laughs> and then I'm 63 years old, right? <laughs> Amen. Right? Do you agree with me? Uh, does this sermon make sense to you? So I want to close. I don't want to give altar call because Jesus never do that, right? <laughs> Jesus said, go home and count the cost. <laughs> right. Don't be an altar call Christian because all you get is inspired fantasies. <laughs> the reality is when you go home. All right. So I want to address all idealistic Christians. means all of us. I want to speak to bankrupt builders <laughs> and defeated kings. I want to speak to those fallen on the way. Those who feel that they cannot pay the price anymore. I want to speak to those who have given up. To those who condemn themselves for letting down Jesus. I want to tell you, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. You don't have it in the first place. And today, we can right that wrong. Amen. I want to conclude that we can right this wrong. We must get the teaching of Jesus right. And Gethsemane is where we count the cost. Gethsemane is where we count the cost. Gethsemane is where we know we cannot pay the price. Right? You must see Jesus as Gethsemane, as your model, before you see Jesus on the cross. But Gethsemane is where we see Jesus, and we see Jesus on his knees with sweat or blood coming down in his own agony, struggling like all of us. He's praying for us because he told Peter, let us pray together. You need to pray. He's praying with us. He's asking the Father to give us what it takes. You know, Jesus is wonderful. Whenever he asks us to do something, he himself pays that price. He himself gives us the ability to do so. When God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he provided the lamb. In Gethsemane, angels are all around. Right? Gethsemane is a wonderful place. When we are weak, then we are strong. Right? Jesus said only the sick needs a physician. He is not called to come to tell the strong to carry the cross. Right? He has come to us a week right? that I will give you the power to carry the cross. Gethsemane is not five minutes of altar call. You know, I, I was a Christian many years. I've been to many altar calls. I, I even was slain in the spirit many times, but that changed nothing. <laughs> right? Gethsemane is daily prayer. Gethsemane is lifelong prayer. 
The cost of discipleship has to be counted daily. It's not a once and for all event. It has to be counted daily and paid daily. The next day, you've got to count again. It is what Paul calls a living sacrifice. Each day when we wake up alive, we have to carry the cross. We have to put our will to death. Gethsemane is every time we need to build a tower. Gethsemane is every time an enemy king comes to challenge us. And where is Gethsemane? Gethsemane is an altar we have to build in our hearts. You know, in the Bible, biblical places are very important. And what, when the Bible talks about places out there, he, God wants us to build those places in here, our inner landscape. The inner landscape is very important. You know, people like, Singaporeans like to go for holidays to foreign land. I say you have a foreign land inside, inside your chest that you have not examined, you know. Our heart is where we need to build a battle. It's where we need to build a Mount Moriah. It's where now we need to build a Gethsemane. It's where we need to build a Calvary. And then we need to go into the Gethsemane of our heart to go there daily and to go there often. And we must not get up from our knees until we receive that power from on high. Then we can rise up and build a tower. Then we can rise up and win that war. Let there be a Gethsemane in your heart today. And it's also good because after Gethsemane, before Gethsemane is the Last Supper. So even as you come for communion afterwards, may you build that altar of Gethsemane so that you can face the cross. You can't go to the cross from the communion table. You need to pass through Gethsemane. In the name of Jesus, Amen and God bless you.